0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to HR Works, brought to you by BLR. I'm your host, Steve Bruce. HR Works provides clear, relevant, actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals. When you're armed with best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional value to your organization, HR works. Many times, HR managers and their executives know that something's wrong. The organization is not functioning at as high a level as it should. But what's to blame? Is it a culture problem, an engagement problem, a people problem, an organizational design problem? Today, we've got an expert at diving into organizations, finding the real problem, and fixing it. With over 20 years' experience in leadership and team building, Lisa Ruth leads the team of consulting professionals at Cultivate Leadership, where she is CEO. Thirteen years ago, she left her career as an executive in telecom and manufacturing to dedicate herself to helping companies and organizations with the mechanics of leadership, human performance, and systems of collaboration, all with the goal of helping leaders make a deeper impact. She honed her skills at the Ken Blanchard School of Business, studying applied leadership and organizational psychology, later completing graduate work and authentic leadership at Naropa University. She holds many professional certifications, including Certified Customer Experience Engineer, Six Sigma Black Belt, Kaizen Facilitator, and Certified Workplace Wellness Coach. Lisa works with companies of all sizes from global multinationals to nonprofits, startups, and mergers. And I'll just uh, mention that today's episode is brought to you by BLR's HR and Employment Benefits Summit, which is taking place uh, April 23rd and 24th in Boston, Mass. This VIP forum event is the perfect fit for HR decision makers looking to source new solutions and engage with other midsize and larger employers. To find out if you qualify for a complimentary ticket and executive hotel accommodations visit forumevents.com/hrworks forumevents.com/hrworks Okay Lisa welcome to HR Works
1: Hi delighted to be here
0: So we want to talk about looking beyond what things seem so let's um, start with the type of calls you get. What are the typical presenting problems?
1: I usually get called when something's not right. Sometimes we get calls from leaders who are really forward thinking who want to plan out a change very intentionally, but most of the time when we get a call, it's because something's not not working. Um, we get called when a change is taking too long to implement. Uh, when performance isn't where it should be, cultures are acting unexpectedly when they come together. Sometimes it's a leader that transitioned, and the wake of that transition is really palpable in the organization, things like
0: that. So you get these uh, calls, and then how often are these initial calls uh, accurate about what needs fixing or what the problem is?
1: Well, When a leader says, I have a war going on between sales and operations, I believe them. Um, When I hear performance isn't where it needs to be, I know that they've tried everything that they know to do about that problem, or they wouldn't be calling me. But when the call also includes a hypothesis about why the problem is happening, like people just don't care about their work, and we have serious quality issues, um, things like that, I usually find that there's more to the story about the why. And for a number of reasons, I think finding the root cause is complicated. It's more complicated than it seems, mostly because people tend to look at problems from their own lens. It's kind of like the old saying, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, So we had to develop our own methodology for making sure that we got a very holistic due diligence that we could triangulate from every direction of the organization to really understand what was actually causing the problems at the root.
0: So uh, what sort of approach have you developed for evaluating these situations and uh, getting to the root of the problem?
1: Well, 16 years ago when we began doing this work, we learned really quickly that most problems appear to be people problems. Most of the calls that we get are about the people. Um, As a matter of fact, for a long time we prided ourselves in being people mechanics. Um, But we quickly learned that about Nine out of ten times, so when there was a people problem, there was an underlying barrier to those people getting aligned and having productive or cohesive interaction. Um, so we developed a methodology that's pretty simple. It's basically four quadrants. Um, and, and at the time we thought all problems fall into these four quadrants. Uh, people, it, it's almost like if you were it, if you were drawing on a whiteboard, you, you would draw a square, and divide that square into four smaller squares and go around it clockwise in your diagnosis. And so we would start with people, and then process, and then uh, in the lower left, technology or tools and culture. And for a, for a long time, everything did fit into one of those categories. Um, but the interesting thing is that about eight years ago, right when the economy crashed, we realized that our fail-proof methodology was sort of failing us, that they they weren't tightly fitting into those four quadrants. So, um, for example, if people was a symptom, then almost always culture was on the table. And if tools and technology were part of the problem, like you've made a big change in your ERP system, or you've just moved financial management, you've just moved financial software, then often process would be on the table, and that was normal. It meant that we had to dig and, and really get underneath to figure out what some of the, the tangible causes were. So typically the way that we do that, that digging, typically the way that we dig to find out what's underlying the problems is we triangulate the information that we're getting from the leadership team. We ask if we can interview the people. Um, Typically, the the voices from the boots on the ground have rich knowledge about what's actually happening to create some of the ripple effects that leadership is feeling. Um, We conduct manager-free focus groups that are anonymous, and sometimes being an outsider really helps with that. And then we observe people doing their jobs in a number of different ways from all different angles of the organization. we then look at the structures that an organization has. And by structures, I mean the sort of the, the boundaries or the, the firm things that we like to manage the organization with. So the metrics, the goals, the policies, um, the way meetings are conducted, and how leadership makes decisions. All of those things that are put in place to keep people on track are part of the puzzle as well. And with that, what I call triangulated view, I often validate what I'm hearing or seeing, but get a deeper look at why it might be that way. Um, So we we gather the findings in the four quadrants, people, process, technology, and culture, and then look for one or two main levers that are causing these symptoms.
0: Sounds like a very thorough approach. And so then going back to where we started, how often do you find something unexpected or different than what you were called in about?
1: A lot. Um, about 80% of the time. But, now, that's not to say that the core of the request is totally different. It's just usually not the why. It's a difficult process. There, the people who call us are smart people who have tried everything before they call. Um, their leadership teams have often been working on these problems for years. And even for us, it feels like we'll never hack it until we gather enough data, Um, which, again, being an outsider does give us an advantage. I think that it's easier for us to go and challenge and ask the really dumb questions that no one thinks to ask anymore, because they've sort of taken for granted that this is how things are done here.
0: All right, well, let's see. Maybe this is a really dumb question, but... Do you have some examples you could share with us about how uh, all of this works in practice?
1: Sure. Yeah, In I have a great example. In 2009, we received a call from a client for the third year in a row. It was a culture repair project, global, multinational. They had employees um, operating in every language around the country, and this was their third CEO in the past three years, so a culture repair project would be easily justifiable. Um, but we knew after, after we'd been there twice, we knew that we had missed something. Clients shouldn't call us multiple times for the same reason in spite of a, a, of a leadership change. So what we decided to do was send in an independent team that had not worked on the project three years prior and had them go in and do our, our due diligence. And so they did all of the interviews, they did all of the focus groups, and they came back with exactly the same findings, almost word-for-word word, same findings, having not been exposed to this team before, um, which really stumped us. And so we all got together and realized, you know, clearly we're going to need to dig a little bit deeper. So there was a war going on between engineering and manufacturing. Engineering was accused of being, um, engineering was accused of not caring about their work and refusing to collaborate with manufacturing when problems would come up with the products. And manufacturing was being accused of being slow or lazy and even being threatened to be outsourced. So in years past, we had worked with the management, we had done combined team builders, we had made agreements at every level, um, about how pe- these, these departments were gonna work together, but it was still happening. So we looked at the most, we, we tried to go a level deeper. We were looking for what makes you successful here, what makes you, what makes you good at doing this job of engineering or manufacturing. And what we discovered after watching a number of leadership staff meetings and, um, and then looking at the metrics is that they were sabotaging the collaboration by having some competing objectives. So they were measuring this one specific thing called absorption rate. And absorption rate is a way of tracking how many of your engineer's hours are actually billed to specific projects, or are they billed just the overhead? And in, in really trying to bring that number down, which is something leadership is charged with, making sure that the financials actually pay off, in trying to bring that number down, the emphasis on, on getting that number down, it actually incentivized the groups not to work together. So on top of that, it has sort of oriented the whole organization around this scarcity of resources. So that's not an environment where high performance lives, which is actually what the new CEO was wanting. He wanted a high performance culture. Um, But at the end of the day, the way that it manifested was manufacturing would try to manufacture a a drawing. Manufacturer would go back into the the shop, and when something on the drawing didn't line up, in this particular instance it was a bolt didn't line up with, with where it was supposed to for the robotic welder. So manufacturing would go back to the engineers and say, we need you to modify this drawing, and engineers would say, do you have a charge number for that? Well, of course, manufacturing didn't have a charge number for it because it was actually a defective drawing to begin with. Um, and so without a charge number, engineering appeared like they were refusing to collaborate. What they were actually doing was what their managers told them to do, was to refuse to, to rack up a bunch of hours under, under general overhead categories. So we always say, measure what you want to see more of. And in this case, that's what they had done.
0: Do you have one for a medium-sized business, an example?
1: Yes, actually, um, there was a really interesting case of a medium-sized business recently. So, merger and acquisition uh, environment, an organization had basically bought several businesses, several small businesses, put them together, there were three businesses that were very similar to each other, put them together into one organization, and all three businesses were very successful when they when they came together. Five years in, the CEO calls us because they're getting customer complaints that the customer experience is not consistent. So uh, as we go and do our due diligence, we discover a number of different things, Um for one, the organization has, had really struggled to create a consolidated identity as one, as one organization. They had three very separate entities that were very used to their own um, independence, that had their own structures. But in this case, this is where organizational development, or OD as we typically know it today, actually is organizational design was sabotaging them so if three independent businesses that are coming together and and while leadership is building all of this central all of these central functions that are really supposed to scale the business and and help the uh, the individual the individual departments leadership is is investing and creating central functions so that they can scale the business they're still actually acting like a startup so they're all they're all um, used to startup mentality in startup mentality everyone does everything everyone's chief cook and bottle washer and you know the, the the senior manager might stop at Sam's in the morning to pick up toilet paper and stock the bathrooms before the big staff meeting and as you grow some of those some of those behaviors actually sabotage performance. But because they had come together in an exciting sort of startup mode where everyone does a little of everything, now that they had they were making success together as one big organization, they needed to be more mature for things, and, and things needed to be more predictable. So this now becomes an organizational design project, an OD in a different way, than organizational development usually is. So I think of organizational development as sort of the the symptoms. This is these are the results of the business. Organizational design is is how the business is structured. And in this case, their processes, their collaborations, their handoffs, everything needed to be matured and and thought of as a medium sized business that really leveraged their central functions. So customers were actually echoing what employees already knew, that the skills that had gotten them the success that they had at this time were not the ones that were going to scale the business and keep them in business. They were actually not the same skills that would please customers once you win the business. So that very entrepreneurship that had made them such an attractive solution compared to their competitors, meant that there was a lot of winging it and sort of cross-reaching that when it came time to deliver results, didn't produce the consistent results that, they, that customers would have expected from a medium or a large size business. So it was understandable, especially when there's geographical distance between these teams that they would be structured in sort of their own unique way, their own individual ways, having come from a merger and acquisition mentality. Having come from a merger, they retained their own individual DNA, their own cultural DNA. And the real challenge then was to design them in a way that their culture actually permeated through everything. And that design was actually... Less of a cultural problem than it was more of a structural issue. So, in going back to our model, this particular client actually showed up in all four quadrants. There were issues in people, process, technology, and culture, but the root of the issues were actually at the foundation of that model, which is that senior leadership needed to make some. A path for those collaborations and those handoffs to be clear. So it was actually the the design and the foundation of those four categories that was that was tripping them up.
0: So you mentioned uh, collaboration and handoffs. Could you give us a, just a few details on how you went about uh, improving the collaboration and making the handoffs clear?
1: Yes, actually, that's my favorite part. Is when we get to tech- actually start seeing change happen. So one of the biggest mistakes that I see are when leaders get in a room to solve problems at the employee level. So a lot of times we get our post-its out and our whiteboards out, and we all go into a room so that we can solve process problems that we don't actually do every day. So it's been our experience that people who do the work every day, who know the process, and most importantly, the workarounds, the things that they're doing that are outside of the process better than anyone, it's important that they're involved and that every level of the organization is sort of put in one place to, to design when those handoffs happen. It's a great place for leaders to be in the room and to start using the five-why method, I'm sure you're familiar with. And so, you know, people will put things up on the board and say, well, the scope of our, of our department starts and stops here, and the scope of your department starts itself here, but the information from your department to our department isn't actually clearly defined. And that's a good place for leaders to stand in the room and say, okay, why? What's important about that? And why again? And why again? Sometimes we find in those workshops that, especially when you have the right people in the room, we find that there's something we're doing because that's the way we've always done it and because it's it was done that way three or four leaders ago. And that's a really good time to revamp um, those handoffs and those collaborations. But oftentimes there is a reason why, and it's too hard three or four levels above them to anticipate why that reason might be. So I really enjoy the, the creative facilitation of those workshops where people can come together, think cross-functionally, make some agreements, and most importantly, get it done in in a fraction of the time that it would normally take if we all had to schedule meetings department by department, come to agreement. Sometimes I find that process of reinventing ourselves takes so long that we actually, we we expire before we have the ability to, to fix anything. So for me, it's really important that we get the right people in the room, have the right conversations, and then try to move to to a point of sort of cross-functional action quickly. Um, We actually had a client do a project just like this where we traveled with them from they were they were responsible for all of the Americas. And so there was a, a massive change that had gone on with this organization that um, reduced their their people to about half. So they had an, a reduction in force to about half of the people that they had had the, the year prior. And so we traveled with them from South America all the way to Canada to every location, basically asked what needed to be improved um, now that their footprint was smaller, how do they make things more efficient, and, and what needed to change about the change itself. And unfortunately, the client got cold feet right at the last mile and decided to craft a, a, a solution without the help of the people. And so we had done these facilitations in four different languages all the way across the Americas. And the cultures of each one were so radically different based on the country, based on the language, based on the, on the, um, the history of that particular location that crafting a, one solution at the top for all of them really homogenized it and then and once again reinforced to the employees that they were not important. So the engagement actually took a double hit because we asked, and then we didn't act on what was said in the way that, that they felt was really true to, to their particular culture.
0: Well, thanks. That's, um, that's very helpful. Now, we've been talking about people... And I'll just uh, say consultant Bob Kelleher uh, was recently quoted as saying companies think they have a culture problem or an engagement problem, but really they have a hiring problem. So how important is hiring the right people to developing a productive and engaged culture?
1: You know, I, I get that question a lot, actually. I've seen some really amazing companies that hire to their culture uh, an example of that, for me, would be Whole Foods Market or Southwest Airlines or Starbucks. And I think when, when your people must have something like like Southwest Airlines has, casual playfulness yet professionalism, you have to hire for that. When your, when your culture is so intentionally created, then yes, you have to hire for that. But when I hear there's a culture problem, I often, often encounter an engagement problem. So, engagement, just to separate the two, is when even the best employee, the one that you very specifically hand, handpicked, has unplugged or distanced themselves for some reason from the work that they're doing. So, I believe that productive, engaged cultures come from employees who feel like they can be successful every day. I like to tell a story when I talk about this, um, about squirrels, I always say, when you go outside and and you observe squirrels, what are they doing? And typically the answer is they're collecting nuts. Well, that's what squirrels do. Squirrels always collect nuts. Um, You rarely ever see a squirrel hanging out in a tree just being lazy. Um, And I think that we, like all the rest of nature, we all want to wake up one day, wake up that day and, and be successful whatever that is. And when we can't be successful, um, then the frustration of that is something that we disengage from. So a lot of times when people can't be successful, it's because processes aren't efficient. People aren't aligned. Um, Management isn't removing barriers for for them from higher levels. They're disengaging. Um, And so for me, hiring is only the beginning.
0: Well, thanks. This is all, uh, all very helpful. Um, to sum it all up, any final recommendations for companies concerned about their cultures, which may not be their real problem?
1: Yes, actually. I, I think of culture as invisible. I kind of refer to it like a smell that you only detect when you walk in the room, and after a while you just come out smelling like it. Um, For me, culture happens as a result of something. So culture for me is never usually the root cause. It's typically a symptom of something. Either you have crafted the rules of engagement to support everything that you do, or you've allowed those rules to be crafted by the loudest voices in the room. And this is why culture can be the strongest tool in mergers and acquisitions situations. Because it speeds the integration by giving people really clear understanding of how things are done here. But if culture is the pain point, it's likely that the way that we're doing things as a leadership team is creating the unintended smell that you're, that you're sensing. You know, it's, it's kind of like, I think of it like the couple that you hang out with that's always fussy with each other. I always tell people, if you hung out with them long enough, you'd probably start fussing with them. I and mean, culture is just like that. Um, if your measurements and policies are written, for example, if measurements and policies are written to protect the company from the customers and the employees, low trust and careful engagement will follow. If the management spends a lot of time inwardly focused, the focus of employees will be on the organization, not on their customers. Culture is usually baked into the design and it's invisible. And without looking at the things that you do to create those invisible rules of engagement, it could be a ghost that revisits your culture over and over, no matter how often you swap out the people or launch a new culture catchphrase or go to a new new team builder. Culture is sort of how we do things while we're doing what we do.
0: Thank you. Thanks for that. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today and providing all these helpful insights. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, let me just mention again that Lisa is a speaker at BLR's HR and Employee Benefits Summit, uh, taking place April 23rd and 24th in Boston. You network with peers from leading companies and attend workshops and sessions for HRCI and SHRM recertification credit, and it's all at no cost. You can learn more by visiting forumevents.com. Slash HR Works. That's forumevents.com/slash HR Works. Listeners, please let me know what HR Works should cover next. S. Bruce at blr.com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works.